0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together, and we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We are turning this morning to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We are nearing the end of our series on Psalms. We've been in the Psalms most of the summer, and next week will be our last week where we do so. Uh, One of our goals with this series was to hit the different themes that we find that's common in the Psalms. And so we've, we've gone through different Psalms of hope and about homesickness. We've Heard psalms of lament and brokenness, and we wanted to cover this psalm. I wanted to cover this psalm because this psalm is one of the most quoted psalms that we might have. It's, there's pieces of the psalm that can be pulled out and used in different contexts, and I thought it'd be really helpful for us to look at the psalm in, in a deeper way. The other thing that I think is helpful for this is I, I find that when sermons do their job in a really, really good way, not only do we hear a compelling, practical message for us to live differently, but we also learn more about the context in which scripture came from. And many of these psalms, we have no clue the context which they came from. This psalm is one where we know all about it, maybe more than what David wants us to know about the context from this psalm, because we have a full backstory to Psalm 51. And so in this sermon, I'm going to do three different things. I want to first study the context of where this story came from, the backstory of the psalm, then look at the psalm, and then apply it to our life together. This psalm covers one of the, like, a not popular subject matter in our day and age, and it's sin. Uh, I grew up in a tradition uh, where we talked about sin often, and I... Uh, along the way, kind of became familiar with my life with God around uh, a life of sin management. It's kind of like the religion in which I constructed my life of like, how do I sin less? What do I do when I sin? How do I hate sin? How do I feel about myself when I sin? And uh, many of us have rejected that kind of understanding of a life with God. But in doing so, I feel like we haven't really understood what is sin's role in our life. Even in our church, I often find that we use the word brokenness or regrets a ton more than sin. And so today we're going to do the uncomfortable thing of looking at a story of brokenness and sin and consider that role in our own life. The story begins way back when uh, in our scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, who is credited with writing most of our psalms, uh, he was a real renaissance man. He was a poet. He was king, he was a warrior, he was a musician, he was a great leader, and Scripture says that he was also a man after God's own heart. Undoubtedly, he was the most revered king of all of Israel's history, a hero of the faith. Actually, Jesus actually calls himself son of David many times in our Scripture. Yet, what we find with David is he is someone who was susceptible to brokenness making awful decisions that led to incredible consequences. And it all begins, and this story begins the first line. Sometimes in movies or in stories, the first line tells you the rest of the story or sets a tone. That's the case for 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is how the story begins. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. The backdrop of this story is that David begins where he shouldn't have been. At times in our life, uh, or at times in, in his life, he would lead the troops in this certain time of year. But in this moment, he chose to remain in the comforts of the palace and delegated his authority or responsibility to other people to take the troops into battle, into war, into vulnerability. Instead, he comforted himself and stayed in protection. Oftentimes, I believe that some of our biggest regrets begin because we find ourselves in places we shouldn't have been. And instead of considering the role that we've been given to play in this world, we begin to look at our own comforts, our own protections. We begin making decisions based on our own pleasures and not the care of other people or living out vulnerability with courage. David wasn't just away from the battlefield. He was also alone. As he sent away his troops and his trusted leaders, we can imagine David there in his palace spending a lot of time Alone, isolated, he was away from his trusted companions, disconnected from his role and his purpose, and David was isolated. What I have found that usually takes people out of their area of influence, what causes leaders to fall in many ways, rarely is that they have a drop in skill or their ability decreases or their giftings go down. Usually what takes people out of their place of influence is an issue of integrity. And the chain of failures that usually happen don't begin in the public eye. They usually don't begin in a boardroom or with peers. Usually it begins when someone is left with themselves, tucked away in self preservation and their own comforts. When you and I are isolated, we are left with the only person that has participated in every regret we've ever made. And who is that person? It's you, it's me. I have participated in every single bad decision that I have ever made. As I heard one pastor say recently, no one does a better job of deceiving me than me. And I know that. If I could coach myself right before I make the routine, the cycles of bad decisions, I mean, I would never counsel myself in the same way that I do other people. But I, I have this incredible ability to take my own bad advice. And we see here with David how this plays out so very clearly. As David's life, as he makes this decision, as he's separated from his his role, he begins to make one bad decision after another. And like a stone that's dropped into a pond, the ripple effects continue to uh, go out further and further, affecting many people's lives. And so one evening, David got up from his bed, walked around the roof of the palace, and he saw a woman bathing, He became fascinated with her and found out who she was. He found out that she was Bathsheba. Now David knew Bathsheba uh, because her husband was Uriah. And Uriah had this unique title of being one of David's mighty men. This is like a select small group of men who had fought with David for years. His most trusted men who had gone into battle with David over and over again and so David knew Uriah and he knew Bathsheba, but he also knew that Uriah was not at home. He was on the battlefield. And so he sent for Bathsheba to come to the palace, and she did so, and he slept with her. Something to note Bathsheba, in some religious circles, has like this weird kind of like tone given over her, a weird impression this idea of, like, maybe she was a woman of ill repute. I mean, who, who in their right mind bathes on a rooftop? The only time we see people bathing in public is in, like, those Cialis commercials where, like, people <laughs> live in a good life in quad-foot bathtubs in the middle of a field. And so there's, like, this idea that Bathsheba maybe was a temptress. Maybe she was asking for this... She could have been more modest, right? Like, of course she would go to the palace and sleep with the king. What this totally disregards is the power dynamic that was in that culture. In that day and age, when a king called upon you, you, you went to him. And when a king asked something of you, you gave it to him. If not, you were, were looking at imprisonment or worse than that. And so <laughs> Bathsheba, she was being exploited. There's no way around it. She was being asked upon, and David was using his power and exploiting that for others. And it's just, for me, it's just like bizarre that out of the different cultural contexts that we have in our world, sometimes Christian circles are the worst spaces where we can see that dynamic happening, where we can actually be people that we can miss on how power exploits vulnerability. And I just think that as like God's people, as peacemakers in this world, we not, need to not only see that, but we need to stand up against it any time we see that happening in our midst. But as the story goes, Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and one self-centered decision leads to another. To cover himself, David then calls Uriah to come back home. After being gone from his wife for a while, he's going to come back home, and David's idea is, well, of course, he'll sleep with his wife and then they'll have this great story of how this child was born. Oh, remember that time when your, your father got home from battlefields? That's how you were born. None of, none of us like to hear that stories, right, from our parents of when we were conceived. No, thank you. But that was David's idea, like, this is how this is going to happen. But Uriah comes home, and instead of going into the comforts of his own home, he sleeps outside. So then David calls him over, gets him drunk one night, Sends him back, you know, because many of us make big regrets when that happens. But da- uh, Uriah, he still won't go into his home. And we see this juxtaposition, this comparison of the integrity of Uriah and David. Because when Uriah was asked, Why aren't you going in your home? Why aren't you uh, staying with your wife? He said, How could I do that? When Israelites' troops are there on the battlefield, they're sleeping in tents. How can I do that when the very Ark of the Covenant is not at home? So David realized, like, this is not going to be covered easily. And rather than David turning from his sin, rather than him being honest, what does he do? He just begins to double down. He sends Uriah to the battlefield, and he instructs the commander. He says, put Uriah in the front of the battlefield where the fighting is the worst. And when it begins to escalate, bring your men back and make sure that Uriah stays there. Keep them exposed and let them fall to the sword. Another way to say it is make sure Uriah is killed and let your men be a part of all of that. Now, if Uriah had been a warrior for many years, if he had been a soldier who was skilled, and if we would have seen what we saw when he came back home, if he was a person of great character and integrity, don't you know he would have been a leader? Don't you know like the soldiers would have revered him? So on this day when they had to be told that they were going to allow Uriah to be killed and slaughtered in front of them, that would have been a troubling day for them. But that's exactly what happens, and not surprisingly, because of that, on that day, they lose that battle. Maybe they were faint of heart. Maybe they lost the will to fight. We see how that decision keeps affecting more and more people. They share the news to David. They thought David would be furious after losing a battle. But David actually welcomes it. Why? Your eye is dead. It's over with. So he calls Bathsheba to come and stay with him as his wife. And he all of a sudden looks like he's a man of integrity. He's caring for a widow now, right? What a great guy. If you were to stop <clears throat> David on the roof just before setting his gaze on Bathsheba and asked him, would you ever kill a friend of yours to cover for a mistake? Do you think he would have said, yeah, I totally would do that. Probably you'd say, never. Or if you had asked him before that moment, would you ever force, force one of your soldier's wives to sleep with you when they were out on the battlefield fighting for your kingdom? Never. But friends, that is the power of sin in our lives. One of the things that sin does is it invites us to take just one step further away from being who we know we are called to be, who we are made to be, to one further step away from caring for others in the way that we long to. One small compromise. And you know how this goes. It's like a child that runs into the forest chasing a butterfly. Minutes later, they look up and they don't know how they got there. That's, that's the experience for us in our life. Sin has the capacity to blind us. Blind us from the consequences of our decisions, blinds us from the care and concern for how it affects other people, and blinds us also to remembering who we are. Uh, A friend of mine, we were talking on Thursday night, we were talking about integrity, and he said integrity, another way you define integrity, is ruthless honesty. Just being able to be honest with ourselves. David thought that that would be the end of the story. That everything was to settled, he covered it, everything was fine, no one would know. But the justice and also the grace of God would not let it be so. God spoke to the prophet Nathan and informed Nathan of everything that happened. So Nathan had this burden, how do I call out the most powerful person in the kingdom and say, hey buddy, you screwed up, you got to make it right. So Nathan devises this idea. He begins to construct a story, a parable, and he tells a story about two different uh, men, one rich man, one poor man. The rich man had flocks, uh, and uh, it was, they had everything he ever needed, and this poor man only had one little lamb, and he loved this lamb so much, he even slept with the lamb in his bed. And just, just beloved lamb. And so one day, the rich man has a visitor come through town, and instead of choosing from his own flock, he actually takes the poor man's lamb for his own. Now, we can talk later on about the comparison of wives and livestock in a different day, right? But David hears this story and begins to get fired up. He begins to get really angry. And with moral super- superiority, he says proudly in front of Nathan and perhaps everyone else in that court, he said, as surely as God lives, that man must die. And then Nathan said the four words that would change his life forever. You are that man. These four words would perhaps be the most Painful words that he would ever hear, but also it would be the most liberating words he would also hear. Why? Why is there painful liberation? Well, it put to end the web of deceit that David was spinning, it finished it, it put to end the destruction that David was causing in his kingdom, it opened up the closet. And let light shine in there. It forced David to be honest. Okay, so let me just share one honest thing um, about this story that I've been wrestling with this week. I chose Psalm 51 like a while ago, and I was really excited about it because, like, oh, I can just talk about this story and talk about the Psalm, it would be beautiful. But as I came to the Psalm this year, it read differently. And I was wrestling with a couple different things, in particular, around two words. This. Cancel culture. We live in a day and age where we have way, way too many examples of this exact story, right? Like we can go through the list, like they've been canceled, they've been canceled, they've been canceled. And it's usually people with power or position who exploit it to take from other people what's not theirs, right? It's Usually men who are powerful, who use their position to demand that from people who are vulnerable. And we live in a day and age where it's like, okay, we can just go through the litany of, of rules. Like, who's canceled? I was thinking, is Will Smith canceled? Is he gone yet? I don't think so. He's just taking a time out. Okay, good. All right, he's taking a time out. But we see, like, just we can know our mental list of, like, how people have been canceled. And many of them deservedly so, right? But what we find in this story is that David, he's not canceled. He would be today. When those four words were said, the people in the court heard it, he's gone, he's out. But the story of God we find in this scripture displays forgiveness and mercy. And I don't know what to do with that, (laughs) if I'm honest, right? Because some of us, like, we want this story to go differently, Right? How does the grace of God interact with the cancel culture that we live with today? As we are processing that as a staff this week, um, someone mentioned a way to frame the difference between what we're looking at today and what we're longing for in Scripture. And it's about the difference between being canceled and being accountable. So God is a God of righteousness, right? God is a God of justice. He's not like a fraudulent accountant who winks at, the, uh, winks at the discrepancies of people's life. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He's not like Jason Bateman in Ozarks, laundering away our selfishness and greed, right? He's not a Marty Bird character. There is accountability with God. But God uses accountability so that people can be restored and not canceled. There's a finality to being canceled. Like where we just send people away to cancel islands, and they are just belong there forever. They're not allowed back. <laughs> Yet, on the other hand, we, there does need to be accountability, right? And many of us, like, there's, there's wisdom to having boundaries, healthy boundaries and consequences from decisions that people made. What we find in this story is that David will have lasting consequences based on the decisions he made, how he used and exploited uh, people with his power. He will lose a child with, uh, that Bathsheba had carried. Um, discord breaks out in his home. He is told that the sword will never leave his home. All of this is from the consequences of his, of his decision. But he is reinstated back into his position because he responds with humility. He responds with eventual honesty. He retains his influence. And most importantly, he's restored to God. I hope that as much as that kind of rubs against our cultural norms, I hope that there's also some hope and comfort that you find in that. Because with God, we aren't canceled. Forgiveness and grace are available for those who are willing to turn from their brokenness and their sin and to come to God with sincerity with honesty, with humility. There may be painful consequences due to the decisions that we have made and we continue to make, but our story is not over. It's not finalized. We see that David is truly repentant. He's not like some, he's not holding a press conference and going through the lines that we have gotten used to, right, in our day and age. He is truly repentant. And how can we see that? How do we know that? From this psalm. Psalm 51 cracks open a heart and reveals how David responds. He begins with this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David models how we return to God. It is not based on anything that you have earned, your attempt to get back to God, the degree to which you hate yourself. That doesn't get you back to God. How is David getting back to God? According to your unfailing love. Though my love fails, your love is unfailing according to your great compassion, We don't have a religion of sin management where if we hate ourselves more and more, God would love us more. What we do is we put God in front of us, the mercy of Jesus in front of us, and we remember who God is, and as we do so, we can remember who we are. Our part is to end all image protecting, is to move towards being honest to God in confession. And don't you wish that that was the reputation of Christians? Out of everyone in our culture, there's a group of people who don't protect images. They're Christians. Don't you wish that that was our reputation? They're humble. Before they judge other people, they take honest assessments of their own decisions, of their own sin. Don't you wish that that was our reputation? That we are honest people who are known to confess with one another. That's in part why we gather on Sunday, and during our worship, we have a prayer of confession, it's because as we gather as God's people, we need to get good at admitting our faults and remembering God's grace. We need to practice that together, being able to say that with one another in unison and, and hear these words that we have been forgiven. That's in part why we do that every single Sunday, because we toss aside an empty religious shell that everything's fine, everything's okay, and we are honest again. That's what David does eventually. David continues in verse 3 on this psalm. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I can't shake it. It's always before me. Then he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done, and done what is evil in your sight. I love this psalm. I don't like that verse. <laughs> I know, maybe it's heretical. Give me grace a little bit. But I struggle with that verse. Why? Well, David sinned against a lot of people. A whole lot of people. Now, commentators will say, oh, this was just saying that David is like supremely, he ultimately sinned against God. I still don't like it, right? (laughs) Why? Because I think there's this, blindness to all the decisions the people he impacted Bathsheba Uriah the soldiers his family the kingdom I mean it goes on and on and my problem is that oftentimes people can use this as a proof text that I don't need to go to you and ask for forgiveness when I have sinned against you why against you and you alone have I sinned I've already made it right with God I don't have to go talk to them and the problem with that is we don't see the sin in our life and the brokenness that we have caused in other people. So what do we do with passages like this? What do we do with Scripture that we just rubs us wrong, goes against our, our own convictions or sensibilities? Well, when I read passages like this, I remember this image. We talked about this image uh, months ago. This is from M.C. Escher of hands drawing hands. It's a paradox, you know, which hand is drawing the other one? But I think about this when I think about Scripture, because uh, we believe that Scripture is God's holy and sacred word. But it also came to us through people with human experiences, with writers who were inspired by the Spirit, who were coming, uh, writing their experiences with God. And so I honestly, when I come to verses like this, when I read David saying, Only against God have I sinned. Rather than tossing it out or rather than just quoting it when I don't want to apologize to my wife for something I did, like this morning when the fire alarm was going off when I was getting ready for the bed and she was screaming at me to muffle it with a towel and I just threw it on the ground and it stopped. I don't, you know, you know I don't want to confess because I'm, I'm going to come to church and I got this moment, right? But instead, what I do, rather than tossing out the scripture or proof texting it, I consider my own life. How often do I completely disregard the pain that I've caused other people? How often do I use my own religion to hide from being honest with people? And I look at scripture like this and I actually go, I am just like David. I can try to make this a vertical relationship and I forget the impact that I've had on other people. And so I actually don't toss this out. I use this as a place of honesty and reflection. What we, what we find here that David, he's trying to do that work. After declaring who God is and situating it uh, his hope in the character of God, David begins to make a series of petitions. In particular, I want to f- focus on verses 10, 11, 12. Scripture reads, create in me a pure heart, O God. Purity of heart means that it's made of one It's not fractured or convoluted. I want, and he's saying, I want the deepest part of me, my heart to be solely given to you. I want it to be whole again. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Give me the strength that I long to have to be who you are longing for me to be. I need to be transformed. I don't need just to try harder. I need to be transformed from the inside out. This is like, a concept for me that I feel like we have to get our minds around. It's not just about us striving and trying harder. It's about us realizing we can't do it on our own. This is where our friends in recovery and AA have so much to teach us. As you might know, in AA, you work through the 12 steps uh, to try to uh, experience sobriety and become a more whole person. It begins with step one, though. Step one is what? We admit that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. So the story of recovery that we are all going through, the story of restoration, begins with what? We are powerless in and of ourselves. Our lives, we can't manage this, continue to manage this anymore. This isn't just about recovery from substances. This is about being human, being in need. You know, I can't do this on my own. I can't manage my life. Step two says this, though. What do we do in response to our inability to manage and control? Will we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity? Our response to our inability is not that we're left alone. We are then called to tap into something outside of ourselves. That's the heartbeat of this psalm. David is acknowledging that he can't control and change Anything on his own. His brokenness runs deep. Therefore, he needs God to intervene. He needs God to give a new heart, a steadfast spirit. So this is his longing. Verse 12 goes to this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is why this is not just about um, a sense of religious moral scorekeeping in sin management, this is about the joy in being saved. When we realize that we have an unfailing love that claims us, that comes to us a thousand times a day to remind us that we are more than our sin, we're more than our brokenness, that we are deeply loved in God, that is where this joy of our salvation comes from. What is interesting is that David needs to remember that he has joy in being saved. As I said earlier, sin has the capability to blind us. Blind us from the consequences of our decisions and the people whom we are hurting. But I think the saddest thing is it also blinds us from the joy of having a Savior. Our hearts and our minds become dull from the joy that we are claimed and loved. It's not that we've lost our salvation, right? Right? What have we lost? We lost the joy of knowing that we have been saved. So can I ask you? When was last time that those simple truths of Jesus moved you deeply? The fact that God loved you so much that Jesus came to live a life you couldn't live, to show you the way, to put to the end uh, to end the legacy of death and destruction. And to show us that there is something that's given to us, a joy that's eternal. When was the last time that your joy was stirred by the simple truth that God knows you by name and His love will win you over? That your belovedness goes deeper than anything else? Your regrets, your brokenness, your sins, the, your past, there's something that goes deeper than all of that. It all pairs in compar- pales in comparison to the the love that God has for you? When was that time that stirred you, that moved you? David's life in this psalm teaches us how each of us can easily lose ourselves one regrettable decision at a time, but how we are never canceled from the grace of God. So friends, this kind of seems like a heavy message in many ways. We've talked about sin a whole lot today. But I hope you actually find the hope in this message. Hope that this psalm can be our prayer. We're we're about to take communion here in a second. And today, I just want to kind of just set this up as not coming to this table because you want to demonstrate your faith or you make some public proclamation, not to come to this table out of a sense of religious obligation or empty devotion, but come to the table today as a moment where you can be brutally honest with God, where you can Open your heart to God that you need a Savior even today. That you can join in with the voices of thousands of years who have read Psalm 51 and prayed these words to experience what David has experienced. That there is someone who can make you and create you a new heart. Can put a new spirit inside of you. That can take all your failed intentions and failed efforts remind you who you are, that there's joy in being known by your Savior.
0: We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.